Hi there, welcome to Taking the Bee, Episode 5. Conversations about life, health and overcoming the challenges we face on our individual journeys. This time I speak to David Beddow about surviving Covid. David grew up in Stamford, Lincolnshire, then as an adult moved to Buckfastley in Devon. He met his wife in 2001 while she was working in the UK and they got engaged in 2002. When her contract ended and she returned to South Africa, David moved there where they got married. They returned to the UK in 2017 for his wife's work and their son was born in 2018. In March of 2020, the family returned again to Cape Town just before lockdown restrictions came fully into force. David went into hospital for a routine course of antibiotics to treat a wound on his foot and during his treatment he contracted COVID-19, became critically ill and spent the next few months in intensive care. David has made a remarkable recovery and can now share his experience with us. Please note that there are descriptions of medical procedures and frank discussion about suicide and near-death experience. So if you're sensitive to these topics, please be warned. So get ready. Here we go. you end up in South Africa of all places so explain where you are and how you got there and um, what's your life there at the moment well I'm in Cape Town I used to go to a few chat rooms online and I met this girl called Renee and uh, we hit it off she's South African she was working in the UK at the time we started dating we got engaged I, I actually proposed on our first formal date and more amazingly, she said yes. We were then, we were engaged for just over a year. We got married in 2003 in Stellenbosch, which is about 20 miles from where I'm living now in Cape Town. I've been down here most of the last 18 years. We did come back to the UK in 2017. Uh, she's a doctor. Um, she was offered a job working in uh, one of the Signet hospitals in Kewstoke in Somerset. And so we spent uh, three years there. Returned to South Africa. Uh, we actually landed in South Africa on the 1st of March and they closed the border on the 2nd. I'm back here now. We've, the last two years have been extremely traumatic. I was working originally when I moved down, I was working as her practice manager in medical industry. And uh, when we moved back down, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew that it wasn't a good idea for us to just have a single income stream. Uh, because about 10, 11 years ago, she got seriously ill. I was her practice manager. It doesn't matter how good you are at managing a medical practice. If there isn't a doctor there to see the patients, you don't make any money. That was the situation we ended up in. Thankfully, she was, you know, she's been able to recover. Yeah, when we reopened the practice a couple of years later, I again was working as her manager. When we went to the UK, I decided, right, that's it. I've got to do my own thing. I had a business plan for when we came back to South Africa. COVID hit and it went out the window. I had to... Literally, you come back from... So you were in the UK and then you've literally come back to South yep. Africa. 
and in that time that's when the sort of pandemic hits full yeah and so you're you're living in uh, the same conditions like most people around the world we sort of get locked down and all that kind of stuff so was it what were the restrictions that you came back to and how are you coping at that point so what was what was it like for you when you came back that that's complicated i i got an injury to my foot yep. that that's a, a very long story i won't go into it now basically i came back and i had a wound on my foot which because of the change in cabin pressure and what mm-hmm. have you all the healing that had been done came undone and so i had to within a week of being back in south africa i was in hospital you're diabetic as well aren't you i am so, yeah i'm a type 2 diabetic so that is that complications to do with being diabetic the, the big problem was i've i've had neuropathy in my feet which means that the, the nerves in my feet are damaged um i've had that for 15 years or more so that's quite a thing to deal with in itself yeah it makes life interesting it's what they call a progressive condition so it gets worse over time and on one of the trips the last trip to south africa that we had we came down to have a dedication ceremony for my son a couple of days before i had a a look and my right foot had swollen up quite badly and you know it it wasn't unheard of something similar had happened a couple of years before onto crutches keep it elevated and thought it would be okay doctor down here who looked at it said it might be a condition called charco which is where the bones in your foot start to actually collapse oh lovely the simplest solution for that is reconstructive surgery where they put in steel or, or titanium hooks to hold the foot in the position in the shape it's supposed to be the the idea was well we'll just you know, we'll see how things go watch it mm. for the time that i was in south africa and then get it checked out properly when i got back to the uk that was in early 2019 so you've had it looked at in the uk as well the 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 problems in the uk started when they they treated it as though it was charco without doing an x-ray or an mri or anything to confirm that that was the diagnosis what they had was one foot that was very badly swollen the thing that you're supposed to do with that is stick it in a plaster cast for six months hopefully the swelling goes down and everything's okay if not then you move on to the surgery unfortunately it wasn't charco and Mm. um, by the time i got home i could feel that there was something not right so i actually cut the cast off myself and lo and behold there on the bottom of my foot right under the ball of my foot was this huge blister went back to using one of the the offloading mobility boots yeah uh went back to the hospital on the monday they looked at it they kept treating it so i got athlete's foot and the doctor who looked at it said yep there's athlete's foot there and then insisted on looking at the blister because it was on the same foot replaced a thick padded dry dressing which was designed to offload weight with an inodine patch mm. and uh, that soaked the top off by the time i got home from the hospital it soaked the top off the um, blister which then became an ulcer so you returned back home at the start of the pandemic with already with a complication that that is now yeah having having had surgery on it to clean out the dead tissue already um it it had been healing quite nicely but then i had to fly back and Mm. the healing got undone yeah it was a it was a a rough situation that was the start of march and so in in march she then had to go into hospital in south africa 
Yes, I was in hospital for two weeks. Uh, Then they sent me home because I I wanted a second opinion. Hmm. And they were also saying, right, non-essential. At that point, they were starting to shut down. Non-essential treatment was had already been stopped. And anything that wasn't life threatening was being pushed back in the queue. Hmm. So I went for a second opinion. The second opinion did MRI on my foot found that there was infection in had gotten into the bone mm. of the second toe, and they said, "Look, the the only thing that we can do for this at this point is to amputate the second toe." Wow, that's major. Then, how are you feeling at that point? I mean, let, let's get some perspective on it because this this is sounding a bit traumatic already. Did you just go along with it? Were you feeling kind of like, "Oh, this is not"? Is there a bad feeling in your stomach at that point? The first doctor had said, "I'm I'm just going to take your." take your leg off at the knee nice and that that was why i wanted to to go for the second opinion they had said originally in the uk that i needed a below knee amputation because the bone was definitely infected right i declined that at that point but agreed to let them debride the wound which means basically take out any dead tissue yeah took it out and the bone was pristine there was no damage to the bone at all. I was still working on the assumption that that was still going to be the case. Mm. It was a bit of a shock when um, the MRI showed that, yeah, there's there's definitely infection in this bone. There's nothing mm. we can do for that now. Yep. You've got to, you know, it, it's got to come off. So you're faced with that at that point, you're faced with that decision to make. Losing a toe. I mean, it wasn't great, but if you've got infection in the bone, the next stage is sepsis and then gangrene and yeah, then... Yeah, yeah. Dangerous. Yeah, so it's it, it's pretty it's pretty serious stuff. So I went ahead. Hmm. The amputation was actually done on my birthday. Oh, lovely! <laughs> Great stuff. The uh, the surgeon who did it was fantastic, and she did a fantastic job. Sewed my foot up. It was healing okay. It looked a bit weird, and it was healing nicely. So it was healing nicely at that point. Was there anything else going on? There was this sort of nagging infection that wouldn't heal because of COVID. Laura then had to close her practice, and I got referred to a different doctor who was actually one of Renee's lecturers when she was mm. studying. Uh, he was at a, a different hospital again. So that was then my one, two, three. That would be my fourth admission of 2020 that was in the middle of june i was admitted for originally a six-week course of intravenous antibiotics mm. and the the theory is that uh, yeah, that yeah. The, the bug that i got was um sensitive to this particular antibiotic yeah six-week course would clear it not just out of my soft tissue but it would actually clear it out of the remaining bone as well so yeah. that was the the plan the, the first wave of COVID was at its height. So the restrictions, admission to the hospital was an absolute nightmare in itself. You, mm. you had the, the, the first swab where they take mm. the, you know, basically they take a toilet brush and shove it up your nose. Yeah. I had that done. That came back negative. They put me onto a ward. They started the antibiotic therapy. And five days later, they repeated the test, which also came back negative. So then I was moved from the you are waiting to be served ward to the to, to the main ward yeah the day after i was moved to that ward another chap was brought in who was like everybody on the ward he'd had two negative covid tests but he was coughing and spluttering mm. and sneezing mm. and shouting i just started to feel generally unwell mm. you, you think okay you know things are going to be okay because everybody's been through all of these tests and then yeah. about three days after that it looked like the men in black came to get him. You know, they covered 
head to foot in protective right. stuff, talking in whispers, but not yeah. so quiet that we couldn't all hear that this guy had actually got yeah. COVID. Wow. Within 48 hours of that, the other mm. three of us on the ward had all contracted COVID. Really? Wow. So at that point, although you've got COVID and you've tested positive, you generally still all right? I had started to feel I started to feel quite unwell. Right. Blood pressure was doing peculiar things. I couldn't get my you, you have your systolic and your diastolic blood pressure. And yeah. um, my diastolic was getting higher and higher and higher. And they mm. couldn't explain why that uh, to start with, that was the only symptom I got. Mm-hmm. I started to get weaker. I started with a cough. I reached the point where I was, I was so weak. I, I was normal. You know, normally I was yeah, yeah. on the crutches, go to the bathroom, not a problem. Within five days of contracting COVID, I was too weak to even make it to the bedpan next to the bed. Mm. I can talk about it now. It was extremely humiliating at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's it's just one of those things where you don't, you can't process what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. you brain is saying to you you know four days ago you were walking across the walking across the ward and now you can't actually get out of bed because you can't breathe my oxygen saturation in my blood went from it's supposed to be 99 percent or higher Uh, my oxygen saturation in my blood went down to 85 at which point they moved me to intensive care i don't actually remember very much after that until three months later when i came out of the coma unbelievable apparently my my oxygen saturation had dropped down to about 75 uh, which I'm told is incompatible with life. But, uh, I'm I'm still here. Yeah. Amazingly, I don't have brain damage, or so they say. I was on Facebook. I I was trying to document what was going on. Uh, I mm. did some video just to let people know what was happening. I put it up so that anybody could see it. I've been back and watched some of these things, and it kind of freaks me out what I was going through. I don't remember making mm. about half of them. Mm. My oxygen levels dropped my body weight started to drop and uh, eventually the doctors decided that i needed to be intubated so that they they could feed pure oxygen straight into my lungs my fever spike the way that covid works in extreme cases is yeah. it's not the virus itself it's what yeah. the virus triggers in your body that's the the symptoms of what happens that cause when you've got a condition it's not always the condition is it it's the combination of things yeah. that happen from the condition so covid is the infection and that's yeah. the thing invading your body and then the way that your body's yeah. reacting is the way that it's causing the complications so at the point when they're going to intubate you yeah were you aware or awake at that point yeah, when I, when they told me i was being moved to intensive care i was told that intubation was a possibility because mm-hmm. my oxygen levels were so low yeah i have a very vague memory of being taken into the icu for the first time yeah but uh, before they intubate you they um sedate you so you don't actually remember okay. that you've been put down your throat that kind of thing at that point then if this is the height of the pandemic as in we're talking yep. about so I assume that Rene is not able to come and see you at all. No one's allowed no, to come and no see visitors. you. So you're there all on your own yes. in that point. You must yes. have been really afraid, surely. Well, that's that's the weird thing. Up until that point, fear is something that I wasn't really familiar with. I, God, I've got to go back a long way for this. Just after my dad died in 1999, mm. I went through a period of major depression. 
yeah. uh, which led to a suicide attempt. Right. Um, actually, it led to more than one. The last attempt I actually had, a vision is the only way that I could describe it. I, I went to a, a place that was just complete darkness. There was that there was nothing there. It was cold, and I I wasn't quite sure what was going on. But I felt I felt like yeah okay I'm a, yeah am I am I dying am I dead what's mm. what what's happening here? I had this figure of light burst into the darkness, took me by the hand, and brought me back. Basically, put me back into myself, and so he sat with me, comforted me, and then he got up and said, David. Don't ever do that again. Yeah, I, I, I should mention this. He's got the scars in his wrist. He's got the scars inside of his waist. Mm. And uh, yeah, so when when somebody who you definitely identify with as being Christ tells you don't do something like that again, you don't do it again. Mm. It's very simple. But I've had a a sense of peace about dying because I know I know where I'm going afterwards. I I wouldn't say that at that point I wasn't afraid. Mm. I got the comfort of my faith. I got the comfort. Yeah. Of well, you know, if, if I'm if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, and I know the the thing that was breaking my heart was the thought that I wasn't gonna see my son again. You know, po- possibly not gonna see my son again. Possibly not gonna see my wife. Yeah, of course. That was very difficult for me. I wasn't afraid at that point. Mm. You know, how they say that when you you know people who are in a coma can hear what's going on around them. Yeah. Your brain does really weird things <laughs> when you're in that kind of state. I was. They call it delirious. I would say I I was hallucinating and I was hallucinating for the next three months. Later tonight on the Nature Channel, David Battenberg explores the diverse natural habitats on Madagascar. Here we are searching for the elusive Madagascan farting slug, a rare animal hunted almost to extinction by the native tribespeople who value their sebaceous secretions in many of their sacred, mystical ceremonies. We must be extremely quiet, and there may be a long wait before this timid creature makes its presence known. We have to maintain complete darkness, as the Vartin Slug is solely nocturnal in its behavior. So, I will now be silent, as we hope to hear one of the natural world's most spectacular sounds. Sorry, that was me. Oh! No, that was the cameraman. Sorry! Yes? No, that was the sound recorder. Why did we eat that spicy casserole? That's David Battenberg, later tonight on The Nature Channel. They put you into a medically induced coma. Is that is that what they did? To start with, yeah. And then... Do they then gradually withdraw? They took the oxygen tubes out when my breathing started to settle down. Yeah. And my oxygen levels started to pick up. But at that point, I got massive damage to my lungs, to my kidneys, yeah. to my liver, yeah. to my heart. And basically, if you can think of an internal organ... I had damage to it that was caused by the virus. And then on top of that, your body then sets off the immune response Mm. and the immune Mm. response 
then starts to sort out where the damage is. Now, the problem with that is um, the way that my doctor described it uh, to me afterwards was your immune system is like the army. When it gets to the stage that my infection had got to, it's like the general has lost his mind and is just attacking everything. So the damage that was being done to my body was actually being done as much by my own immune system as it was by the the virus itself. And that was what was killing me. So this is part of the COVID, um, the immune response has gone too far. So yeah. rather than it actually helping you at that point, it's damaging your organs. It's damaging everything, yeah. Well, you're, you're there alone. But how does yeah. Renee know what's going on? What was the process for her? Because that must have been, she's now detached from the situation. How does she find out what's going on? I mean, phoning up hospitals, in my experience, is not very. So was there some way or means that she could liaise with someone? Yeah, with her being a doctor herself, it gave a little bit more. There was professional courtesy involved, I think. Right. The, the doctor who was in charge of the unit was a chap called Rubishan Paramel. He is the most dedicated doctor you could ever imagine. He was two years without taking a day off, not a Sunday, not a public holiday, nothing. He was there every single day. Um, he worked in three intensive care units. He only worked in intensive care whilst he right. was because of being the specialist that he was. He had in the first year he had handled a total of 460 patients of those 460 patients 30 survived i was one of them it was i mean again i'm i'm jumping ahead in the story there but mm -hmm. uh, that was the the gentleman was the right man for, for me he was he was definitely he was god's man in place at that time mm -hmm. the world health organization said if a covid patient goes in cardiac arrest do not try to resuscitate mm. two reasons firstly the likelihood is their body is to is not going to be able to cope with it and secondly every time you press down on somebody's chest they exhale so they're then going to be spitting the virus straight into the face of the people who are trying to save your life Charming. delightful stuff i'd been sort of in and out of the coma and uh, delirious state for for three months hmm. the hallucination that i was having was i have never experienced fear like it it was hmm. beyond terrifying yeah. i was being pursued by this character who was telling me that he was renee's father and he was trying to he, he was trying to kill me it sounds crazy but he was played by ricardo montalban in his <laughs> wrath of khan outfit so it's you know when, when you've got a guy who looks like khan uh chasing you and trying to kill you and at, at one point in the hallucination, I was having a physical altercation with this character. And uh, when I when I woke up, I found I was tied to the bed. <laughs> now being lucid, I said to Doctor, what, what's going on? And they said, well, we had to restrain you. Why did we have... I had actually punched a nurse. Nice. And it, it was at the time that my, in my hallucination, I was fighting this, uh, this wow. figure. Basically, I, pu I punched out a nurse. <laughs> so that was, a, that, that was an interesting thing to discover, not one that I ever want to repeat. Although I was hallucinating, there were elements of what was actually going on in the real world. Hmm. In the hallucination, I was trying to fly back to the UK. I got onto the plane and I was 
flying from Cape Town to Johannesburg to get the next flight to fly up to London. I wouldn't believe the nurses when they told me that I wasn't on an aircraft because as it happened, the intensive care unit at Rondebosch Medical Centre set up for COVID has a curved ceiling. And so it looks like the inside of a fuselage of an aircraft so you know, i wouldn't believe them when they said no you you're not on a plane in the hallucination rene was with me and mm. when i woke up i became incredibly distressed because where rene was sitting there was an oxygen monitor right, yeah. i have never felt in this world i have never felt more alone except that day when i'd taken the overdose and i was in the dark the, the word terrifying doesn't actually come close to what i actually felt to, to the emotion that i felt whilst i was there and then i was aware of what was going on in the hallucination and i was aware of the passage of time in the hallucination but not sort of quite yeah it, it didn't quite match up with what uh, how long i'd actually been unconscious so in the hallucination is there an explanation for how those happen or is it something to do with just being ill or is it medically kind of from Uh, the drugs they're giving you or is it combination of all of it it's your brain trying to make sense of what's going on right so um certain things like this this figure that was trying to kill me was i think covid kills so this this figure was trying to kill me that made sense so a rationalization of something trying to hurt you in an irrational hallucination an extremely irrational hallucination <laughs> yes and so you know, there, there were elements which made sense and there were elements that now i'm awake and i look back definitely didn't like i mean it's ricardo montalban I mean, it's, it, yeah. it just you know, i look back and it, it, there's a certain comedic element almost to the way that it was but it was as real as that the experience in the hallucination was as real as talking to you now when i came out of the coma i did not sleep for three days because i was so scared that i was going to find that this was the hallucination if i slept i was going to go back there and that that would find that that was actually the real world did the staff could they differentiate between the states that you were in or was it literally that they were struggling as well with it um so if you punch someone were they then extremely cautious of you could they you know see when you'd switched in and out my behavior was black and white no i i I was definitely i was not myself and they could tell they could tell when i wasn't it was very much jekyll and hyde I apparently had several lucid days during the time. I don't remember them. I spoke to Rene whilst I was in the middle of things. I I don't remember doing it. Uh, Mm. We had WhatsApp conversations. I don't remember doing that. But it was enough that the staff were able to see okay this is the real david because until i became lucid again they didn't have anything to base which was the real me on then i'd been out of it for about three months Mm-hmm. and i remember talking to a nurse this this was in the hallucination so he wasn't a nurse in the hallucination okay. i don't know i don't know who he was i was talking to him in the hallucination and in real life i said i feel sick i lay down and i had a sense of absolute peace for the first time in three months that was on the 1st of september 2020 for the next four hours the icu team performed cpr to get my heart to start again you were talking earlier a little bit about it had been damaging things so is this part of my heart stopped i went into full cardiac and respiratory arrest so your lungs are damaged you've got kidney issues haven't you You said and 
Yeah. And also your heart's now giving up. My heart actually stopped. That is part of COVID, the, the complications. It wasn't just something random. It is actually part of what was going on. Yes, that was my, your body reaches a point where just it just says, enough. I can't do this anymore. Wow. My heart stopped. They fought to save my life for the next mm. four hours. They were having to breathe for me. They were having to manually compress my chest to get my heart going they broke five ribs in the process lovely i have ribs two three four five and six were all broken and they kept going for four hours the, the world health organization says if somebody's got covid and their heart stopped call it common sense says you don't go longer than 20 minutes you watch these medical dramas and they all they call for the crash cart and they bring out these zapper things and they put them on and zap. you can only do that if the heart is fluttering mine wasn't it had stopped if they had stopped doing chest compressions at any point during that four hours you and i would not be having this conversation because they would have they, they would have called time of death what was their explanation as to why they didn't give up on you then and i'm not obviously that's a good thing that they did i asked the doctor that because it seems extreme you know they must have really believed that there was a reason to do this they didn't just do it for the sake of it when i talked to dr paramel mm. he said to me he couldn't explain why he or any of the team weren't prepared to stop. They just knew that once my heart started beating again, I would be okay. They couldn't explain why. They kept going. And they kept going and they kept going. And when the when the nurses were too exhausted to be able to keep going, there happened to be a team of cleaners coming through. And in an intensive care unit, they all know how to do chest compression. And so as the cleaners came through, the doctor would grab one of the cleaners and say, just come and do a round of compressions on this guy. We've got to keep him going. Mm. And so for four hours, he, they roped in everybody, you know, everybody but the dog to, to keep my heart going and, and bring me back. I was still delirious for a couple of a couple more days afterwards and in and out of consciousness. And then one morning I woke up and I was me. I happened to wake up just after Dr. Paramel had gone through the foot of my bed and checked my stats and everything. I started talking and I asked the nurse why I was restrained to the bed and you know, <laughs> what's, what's going on. He came back, he literally bounced back into the room and he said, David, it's so good to see you again. And I was sort of like, okay who are you where am i and why am i tied to the bed and so they started to, he told me what had happened in bits i think probably because they were a little bit nervous that i might go from the shock of finding out what had happened you know it's like you know I, i've come in for i've come in for treatment for my foot what why have i got broken ribs you know what, what's going on why are my ribs like this and so they had to tell me yeah, well your ribs are definitely bruised probably broken but we had to do CPR to bring you back. You hear that and it's like, oh, well, okay. It wasn't until nearly six months later that I found out how long they'd actually been fighting to bring me back. I mean, I'd already been blown away by them. I don't have word to express. There's, there's nothing I can say that adequately expresses the gratitude that I've got for, for these guys' dedication. Every single member of the team was a Christian. I mean, that was something that was amazing, except the doctor. But the doctor who was calling the shots who was the one who was ultimately going to say stop or keep going, was the one who was encouraging everybody to keep going. And he didn't know why. That, that was his words, not mine. He, he didn't know why he was so gung-ho that I was going to make it, but I did. Um, he just knew that I was going to. So that was a <laughs> an interesting experience. With the um, original reason that you went in then, did that get resolved? As, as Obviously, <laughs> you've gone in for something completely different to what has happened now so you've been in intensive care and then you've come out of a coma and what's happened 
in the meantime when i when i contracted covid and i started to go downhill yeah i'd had about three weeks of the six-week course of antibiotics right but i was having a very severe reaction to those antibiotics mm. so i was getting progressively weaker and weaker and weaker anyway and then covid came on so as soon as they realized it was covid the antibiotics stopped but when i came out of the coma the wound on my foot was almost completely healed up it had gone from basically being a huge tear between the first and what was now the second toe it was originally the third toe to being uh, just a, a small almost like a pimple on the sole of my foot about the about the size of your thumbnail it appeared to be resolved i was very grateful i was too weak to be able to do anything the physiotherapy mm. that uh, they started me on after i came out of the uh, coma um, the first three days the physiotherapy was sit up that's <laughs> it here's an armchair sitting that was the physiotherapy can you sit in it for 15 minutes the first day i couldn't i made it 10 and then I had to get back. I had to be helped back into the bed. I literally fell out of the chair. And so over the next couple of weeks, I went from there to actually being able to stand, to actually be able to have a shower. You have no idea how good a shower feels when you've been unconscious <laughs> and having bed baths for longer than you care to remember. So you got all your tubes and wires out of you by that point? Uh, when I came out of the coma, I had zero kidney function. So I was on full dialysis. Did you have a line then? Yeah, I had a, I don't know if the scar is visible, but the scar was about, the, it was going in about here. Just under my collarbone. I think it fed directly into the aorta. The first day that I was conscious, they mm. brought the uh, the dialysis machine in because obviously you yeah. can't take me to the dialysis ward because you've got COVID. So they have a portable dialysis machine. They brought it in, plugged me into it for six hours. That's no fun whatsoever. Then uh, they took it away. And uh, two days later, they did it again. And specialists said to me, I needed to brace myself because uh, this you know, this, this was going to be the rest of my life unless I could get a transplant. And he couldn't explain why hmm. my kidneys started to work again. Well, that's good. Just a little bit at first, but within, within 10 days, I got 50% kidney function. It's never gone higher than that, but uh, they say as long as it stays above 20%, I won't need dialysis. I am technically in kidney failure, the early stages of. Uh, I have to keep an eye on my creatinine. I've actually been for a blood test this morning just to check my levels and that kind of thing. So far, the kidneys seem to be holding their own, if not recovering. New from Prune Mobile, the Kinfolk. Guaranteed to send suggested messages to the wrong contact. Hard to explain away selfies. And noisy alerts that continue even when on silent. Kinphone. New from Prune Mobile. So for me, I monitor something called GFR. Do you get that one? Globular filtration. Yeah, they've they've done a they've done an eGFR for me. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, so they've they've they're they're just estimating it for me. So what what's the result they're getting you for that? But all I know is that the combination shows that I've got about fifty percent funk. Okay. A couple of weeks back, I was extremely ill, mm. and um, the it went it had gone down to about thirty percent. The, the the thing that they look at most is the, um, as well as the EGFR, they look at the my creatinine levels. Yep, yep, yep. They're, they're high, but they're, 
at one point in my at one point when I was in the coma, my creatinine was in um, high triple figures. It's supposed to be no higher than about ninety, and mine was about eight hundred and something. Mine's about five hundred, so that's where I'm at. So I'm just putting into perspective here: if, if it's gone up to nine hundred, that's very high. It's to do with your muscles, isn't it? Um, the creatinine. Yeah, it's something to do with breaking down the protein in the muscle. So people with kidney failure generally have quite a high creatinine level. I'm just putting it into perspective because, and then it puts stress on your kidneys probably because if you've got a high creatinine level, your kidneys are trying to sort of get it out of your system, so it puts a bit of stress yeah. on them anyway. So, so that's yeah. not good. So, so you reckon that now you're about fifty percent? That, that's what my nephrologist tells me. Yeah. So, would you be under three months or monthly on the reviews for that? Four monthly at the moment. Four months. So that's so that's a good sign in a way. So I'd say the the more they monitor you, so I'll be like on a monthly yeah. monitor. <laughs> the yeah. more the closer they get to. So if they're giving you four months, at least they're not imminently worried that you're going to yeah. sort of fall apart. So that that's a really amazing good recovery, then, isn't it? That your kidneys have gone. I know that it's fifty percent, and it's worrying in that sense. Every doctor that's treated me has uh, used the word miracle to describe my recovery. Good, without exception. It sounds amazing. The hardest thing was I was after after I'd been out of the coma for about 10, 10 days. I could stand. You know, I could get to the bathroom. Yeah. And so I was sent to a step-down facility. They still give you high care. I had a negative COVID test. Yeah. So I was able to be sent to this step-down facility, which was great. I'll give a shout out. The place is called Fair Cape. The staff there were amazing. I'd been there 10 days and I started getting what they call rigors. Rigors is when you're shivering and it doesn't matter how hot they get the room, you're cold. It's usually a sign of an infection. So they did the tests and my white cell count was sky high again and they probed my foot and that tiny pimple on my foot was starting to seep and so they said right we can't mess about with this and so I was taken back to the hospital because I'd been on the COVID ICU before I was put back onto the COVID ICU and on the 17th of October of 2020 my right leg was amputated four inches below the knee. Okay so it had culminated in in that. I mean at that point it was a question of this infection is coming in you are not strong enough to fight it. Yeah so were your lungs and your heart were they worried about those at that point or did they because <laughs> <laughs> surely if you've had the the heart has stopped they must have been a bit sort of hyper aware of your previous medical the anesthetist took one look at my history and said i cannot give this guy a general anesthetic oh my goodness the the orthopedic surgeon said well the foot has got to come off or or he's going to get sepsis and die so what they ended up doing was they gave me what they call a nerve block it's what uh, one step up from the nerve from a nerve block is a full epidural. What they did was they gave me a an injection into my spine that meant that I couldn't feel my right leg, and uh, then they gave me a sedative so that I would sleep but not be in an induced coma because a, ge a general anaesthetic is an induced coma. So they just gave me a sedative so that I was basically I was asleep. I didn't have to be intubated. When the sedative wears off, you wake up. And they basically, they said, this is what we're going to have to do. Just be aware that there is the possibility that it may wear off and you may actually wake up in the theatre. Thankfully, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but 
uh, bas- basically, I ended up having my right leg amputated under a local anesthetic. Wow. It was very black and white. Either you have, you know, e- either I had the amputation or I died. So you're at risk now of a secondary infection just finishing you off, basically. Yeah. And you didn't have much choice then. I was so weak that any kind of infection was going to kill me. The way that my body reacted to just this minor, it, it really was just a minor infection that was fl- starting to flare up in my foot. The way that my body reacted was so extreme. They knew, okay, well, this is the site of the infection. We've, we've got to get rid of the site. Otherwise, he's going to die. Surgeon came in and he talked to me and he said, well, it's going to be tricky. And I just looked at him and I said, just take the foot off please he looked at me and he was like are you sure i said i'm gonna die if you don't yes i'm sure i would rather be alive and be a father with one leg than be a memory and since ethan's only three now i wouldn't have been much of a memory yeah by that point it was an easy decision you've been to this rehabilitation unit you've gone back yep. into hospital are you yep. back to the rehabilitation unit back to the rehabilitation unit yeah well first of all whilst i was in the hospital for the amputation Tosca Strafella, who is my prosthetist, uh, came in and she arranged for me to get a wheelchair and she was talking to me about the type of prosthetic leg that I'd end up with. And we were discussing all those sorts of things and making sure that everything was uh, as smooth as it could be. That went on. And uh, when I came out of the operation, the wheelchair was there, brand new, still got the plastic wrap on kind of thing sitting next to the bed uh, with a, a label on it that was fantastic that took me to the step down facility i got my own wheelchair there and my physiotherapy went from can you walk to how far can you go on crutches can you can you control the wheelchair so that was mm. my physiotherapy so that was second half of october and november in the second week of december about a week before i was due to be discharged my prosthetic leg arrived and uh, tosca came through to the step down facility and we spent the day fitting me with a pretty good prosthetic leg it's heavy it's clunky but the day that they gave it to me i was able to walk it's it's a very different experience but i can walk i can drive the funniest thing for me was it is still a hospital. So they come in and they check your blood pressure and your pulse and your oxygen levels and that kind of thing. And there was somebody coming into my room about every quarter of an hour. Eventually, somebody said to me, you know, David, we come here to hide. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Everybody else in the place is so morose. My surgeon came to visit me just to see how I was doing. The guy had mm. taken the foot off and I heard him asking for directions to my room and the directions he was given was follow the sound of the laughter and that was how he found me Uh, it was i just felt okay i've got problems with walking i've got problems you know problems with mobility but Mm. i felt like this weight had gone it's been a difficult adjustment i got the leg in december yeah i got blisters in january and so I ended up back in the wheelchair having the blisters treated because if you've got blisters, obviously you can't wear a prosthetic. I had to go back. It took about eight weeks for the blisters to heal up enough for me to be able to put the leg back on. I tend to wear shorts anyway because it's so flipping hot here. But uh, when I'm wearing jeans or you know, long pants or whatever, people who don't know me, who don't know my story, just think I've got a stone in my shoe or something. It's been interesting getting to that level. Because Ethan is three, he is crazy about dinosaurs. I had the prosthetic 
made and i don't know how clearly you can see that but it's covered in dinosaurs so that it doesn't freak him out i may have gone too far because now when i take the leg off if i don't watch him carefully the next thing i know he is sitting on the edge of the bed with both his feet down into the socket of the leg daddy help me stand help me stand help me. i want i want to walk like you walk and it's like no you don't <laughs> He's wonderful. He's the best reason I've got for going on. It's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be able to experience life, to feel breath in your lungs. Until you've been in a situation where at its worst, before I went into the coma, I had to consciously choose to breathe because it was so painful. My lung function, my pulmonologist, Rubishan, is amazed. I am the only person, including him, who has managed to convince his computer that I have normal lung function. He'd never seen it before. He had not expected somebody who had been as sick as I was to be producing normal lung function. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for anybody listening to this, for crying out loud, if you haven't been vaccinated, get the vaccine. I don't give a damn what Donald Trump or any of these other idiots decide that they're going to say this virus does not discriminate what's the line from terminator it absolutely will not stop until you are dead and it varies doesn't it because you went in and you're perfectly healthy other than other than being diabetic which made me a a high risk but you needed your leg looked at and you've gone into hospital and you're generally healthy you've been on an airplane you've been to england you're moving about you weren't coughing or spluttering you had no issue with your heart you had no issue with your lungs on another interview i talked to someone who had long covid so they were just ill with flu symptoms but then they've had long covid so he had a completely different experience to you and then i've spoken to other people who've had a mild fever and nothing there are people like you said quite rightly the disease does not discriminate and if you get it and you're not vaccinated the chances are it's going to be a lot more serious than they do an, an update for the in the city of Cape Town on mm. the city of Cape Town webpage uh, on Facebook. They mm. do daily updates of what the uh, situation is in in the area and and in the country as a whole. The most recent one that I saw, they've got 500 intensive care beds in the city. Only two of those patients were vaccinated. The others were all people who either had not been able to get to be vaccinated or people who had refused to be vaccinated. It's terrifying. And and there are still people who, in spite of knowing my story and how close I came, I've got I've lost a couple of friends mm. who just thought it was flu. And by the time they realized it was it, mm. it wasn't, it was too late and they didn't make it to the hospital. When you came out of hospital and then you come out of rehabilitation, which was the, the secondary stage, so you've had yeah. a bit of time in there, you come home. Yeah. How did that feel? Because you've now got to get try and get back to some semblance of normal life because you must have been you come you've been away to the UK and you come back yeah. and then in that period all of this has happened. And yeah. then we talked at the beginning briefly about you have a life and you you want to work. So all yeah. of that has been disrupted for quite a long time. All your family yeah. life's been disrupted for quite a long time. And now yeah. after all of that and all of that stuff you've had to deal with, bang, you're back home. Very complicated. 
how was your relationship? I mean, it must have surely had an impact on your relationship and everything. So you're saying it's complicated. So you've obviously got a wife and a son. So you've been in hospital, yeah. all of this. It's all very difficult because it's it's all focused around this constant thing of get David better, get David out of hospital. Yeah. And then you're bang, you're back home. So how was that? I mean, was it stressful in terms of mental health for you and, and the family? Or was it just to sort of plump back in and that's it? No, it's it's not plump back in and that's it. It's It's been just over a year now. We haven't reached a place of normality yet. Really? You mentioned uh, your friend who's who's had Mm. long COVID. Mm -hmm. They've hesitated to give that label to me. Long COVID is a spectrum. I'm on that spectrum, but I've got a lot more energy than Mm. most long COVID sufferers have. In terms of relationships and that kind of thing, my mum and my wife, they don't see eye to eye on a lot of things to the point that whilst I was in the coma, I still don't know exactly what happened. We were, we'd come back and we were, we hadn't got a house sorted out for where we were going to live yet. And then mm-hmm. COVID and mm-hmm. my foot and everything happened. We were staying with my mum. Whilst I was in the coma, mum had a meltdown. Renee had a meltdown. For the sake of her mental health, Renee had to move out. I came out of hospital. My mum picked me up. And I came home and my wife wasn't here. That's not to say she wasn't doing her best to support me. You, you know that book, the love languages thing? No. Where the, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a book called the five love languages or something. Renee's is very much a practical thing. She needs stability and all, all of that. Me, I need, I need to have my hand held. Things were, th- things were, things became very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst I was in the step-down facility doing rehab for myself, I was finally allowed visitors. Yeah. So Renee brought Ethan to see me, and that felt amazing. And then she brought him a second time, and that was equally amazing. And she went home that day, and she stepped on one of his cars and broke her foot. Ouch. So she was then stuck in a situation where she could no longer drive, so... Things became extremely complicated for a while. So when I came out of hospital, she'd gone to stay with her brother, um, who is a fantastic guy. I love him to bits. He took care of her, took care of Ethan, made sure that everything was okay for them, made sure that they got a roof over their head, safe place where she could go. Renee didn't take any time off, even the day that I had the cardiac arrest. She went to work. She, She worked all the way through it because if she didn't because you're self-employed down here there's no unemployment in it so if you if you don't work you don't eat simple as that so Rene went to work family helped out where they could but when I came home I felt her absence I was angry to start with I wanted my hand to be held and she wasn't in a place where she was able to offer that I understand that it um it was difficult to start with because of the tension between her and my mum, she and Ethan only finally actually moved back in October. 21? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'll just get the timeline right. We, we were apart from June of 20 to middle of October 21. Ethan was with Renee as well then? Ethan was with Renee, yeah. Yeah. So they, they'd moved out just because of complications in the relationship with your mother? Renee and I have got... RSUs that we're trying to work through, they were magnified by what's happened with COVID. Well, it's massively stressful, isn't it? You can't just go through that and think that if your relationship 
is going to just come out of it without any <laughs> implications on that. Plus, you have yeah. a child, so it's yeah. going to be complicated, isn't it? The the whole for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Well, we've we've definitely done worse, and we've definitely done sickness. At, at this point, I'd really like to try better and health, and uh, richer would be good as well. But I'll I'll settle for better for, for better and health. You feel like things are going up rather than causing you a headache because you're now looking at what you're going to do with your life and you said that at the beginning that you've got your business cards and things and yes so you're actually able to move on at this point is this, is it really taken is kind of taken this long for you to get to a point now where you're thinking i'm going to restart doing something and actually pick up it's been very difficult i do have fatigue issues it's hampered me over the last year or so when you add that to my natural tendency to procrastinate, that that's not a good thing. I mean, you know how long it is we've been trying to get this set up. It, it's been a struggle. That being said, I've, I've reached a point where I am excited about what's happening. I'm excited for the future. I can't honestly say that I know what's going to happen in my marriage. I hope we're going to be able to work through it. When, when I think about the future, I can't imagine a future without Renee by my side. From the, from the first day I met her, I've never felt like that about anybody. I can't imagine a future without her. I think if you if you've gone through what you've been through, then I'm pretty sure you can fight for your relationship and that you will succeed. Surely that would be a good parallel to draw out of that, but to say I hope so. For the sake of that relationship and also for your son, that you are strong enough now to pull through that. And also on a sort of financial level, which is always a pain in the whatever you want to call it for everyone <laughs> oh yeah you know it's a difficult thing to live and then also there is a sense of in every person that we want to be of value so having a job is important to most people so there's a level at which achieving something you know has got to be part of how we deal with life yeah it's getting that balance now isn't it of saying you know i'm back it is i'm gonna do something with my life but i'm also gonna make the best of what i've already got and um, Absolutely. That, that amazing thing of having a partner and a child is just something to cherish whatever you think in anyone's Definitely. life and now you've got to sort of get that momentum up so that you can um, try and start what you say is it mentoring kind of thing it's a combination of a life coach and a trauma counselor there's two areas that i'm focused on the first is a lot of people's will has been broken by what's happened with covid and so the coaching side of things is to help people to be able to see that you can look at it as a problem or you can look at it, look at it as an opportunity. It, it's one of those things I could have, from what I gather, most people do curl up into a ball for a year before they adjust and are able to start to try to live again. I mean, I was dead. Let's face it. If they're at any point on the 1st of September, 2020, the, they had stopped doing chest compressions i'm dead it's as simple as that if i've been through that there's got to be a reason that i'm still here as far as i'm concerned if i can now turn what i've been through yeah. into something that will encourage other people to get up and get back and get motivated to get moving to create something new out of the ashes of what they've they've had there's a there's a, a flower that only grows in the in the western cape of south africa called the protea it's one of these flowers that periodically the bush needs to burn for the it, it literally it needs to catch fire be reduced to ashes for the plant to be able to be rejuvenated 
you know, that that's a, a perfect metaphor for what I feel like I've been through. The other thing that I want to do is my prosthetist is diabetic. Mm-hmm. She's a type one diabetic. She was diagnosed when she was a child. But one of the things that I would love to be able to do is to work with kids who've just been diagnosed and their families and to work with them because there's, there's not a lot going on that actually encourages people to show them that they can you can live a normal life even if you're diabetic even if you end up as an amputee so you got your you got your energy that you've got from what's happened to you now and you're going to channel that into that so it's going to take a a negative experience and make it into a a sort of positive outcome so that's a really good really good way to take it isn't it absolutely I think one one thing I don't like is when people say they've had a second chance and they're like, oh, I'm going to live every day as if it was the last day of my life. And I think uh, let, let's yeah. not talk like that, but let's actually think about how do I add value to the world? And it's not by living my life as if it was the last day. It's actually yeah. encouraging yeah. that next generation and those people who have lost hope and that maybe Absolutely. are still living in fear. And your yeah. story hopefully will motivate a few people out of their situation and bring them into a place where they can actually move forward. So let's hope that you get um, a few clients on your books quite soon and uh, hope so. get yourself set up on Facebook and your websites and all that kind of stuff. That's the, the unpleasant procrastination that you're going to have to deal with is doing all the admin in the background. I'm going to offer coaching and counselling by virtual mm. connection as well, because obviously with, with COVID around, you can't always... Uh, see people in person that's what we're doing now we've got zoom we've got skype you know there's there's any number of ways that you can that you can talk to people so you know, i mean so what if we're in a different time zone so what if we're at different ends of the planet we can mm-hmm. you know we can have a, a real-time conversation we can work together and hopefully we can make a difference thank you for listening to my podcast if you enjoyed please take a moment to like and subscribe i'd love to hear from listeners if you have any comments or would like to join the Convo Waffle, please make contact via my website, alex-green.co.uk. So join me next time for even more Convo Waffle. Until then, TTFN!